This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for August 22nd, 2019, the 1619 edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C. We are all back. The summer is still going, but not for us. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine in Yale is at a studio in New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. Thanks for looking up for your phone. I was looking for my chatter. To say hello. I already said hi to you before. All right. You have to, I have to pay slavish devoted attention to you for every second. Yes. John Dickerson snortling over there of CBS's 60 Minutes is back from his uh, whirlwind of peace negotiations <laughs> in in Europe. How did that go, John? Did you free any hostages? Did you solve Brexit? Uh, yeah, no, it's all fine. As you can tell, the Italian government's doing fine. British government's doing fine. Germans are fine. I pretty much knit the entire EU together. Uh, no, it's all fine. I was in Ireland, and, uh, you know, it's just, just as wonderful as it always was. Um, Danny Boy. Danny Boy is back. On today's GabFest, we will talk about the New York Times' extraordinary 1619 project and the furor it has caused on the American right. We'll talk about that with Wesley Morris, one of the authors of a piece in the New York Times Magazine, New York Times Magazine special 1619 edition. Then a group of American CEOs want to make American corporations cuddlier and kinder and more generous towards employees and the communities they serve. Is it a scam? Then from Planned Parenthood funding to car pollution rules to background checks to Arctic drilling to immigration exclusionism, how the Trump administration is doing the policy bidding of niche minorities? How does it get away with it? Why is this such a successful methodology for this administration? Is it a methodology for all administrations? Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter and a reminder that there is going to be a GabFest live in the Twin Cities at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota on Wednesday, September 18th. So four weeks away, we're going to be at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota. There are still some tickets left, not that many, so act fast. So go to slate.com live for tickets and more information. The cover of the New York Times Magazine this past Sunday shows a photo, a black and white photo of an ocean view and has this text. In August of 1619, a ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal port in the British colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. America was not yet America, but this was the moment it began. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the 250 years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. And then a small text below that, the 1619 Project. We're joined by Wesley Morris, a critic at the New York Times and a staff writer at the magazine and a contributor to the 1619 uh, Project and also a GabFest guest of the past. Wesley, welcome. So what is the 1619 Project at the New York Times? Where did it originate? Well, it originated with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a visionary in so many ways. And the idea that she had was to commemorate the arrival of Africans who arrived in, in Virginia enslaved. And to think about all the ways that moment is another sort of pivotal moment in the, in the origin of this country and how it's a date that most people don't know. And to think about the importance of that alongside something that, you know, every, every American knows to be important 
date-wise, which is 1776. And I think from the beginning in the project, in my view, really succeeds in doing this. Nicole was arguing that, you know, the arrival of black people, the participation of black people in the nation's democracy and economy and just in all parts of life is like part of it's So it's integral to America. Like the country would not be the country without the without all those people. And that is obvious and yet like profound at the same moment. Wesley, can you expand a little bit on the point that Emily was making, This the premise that slavery is not merely America's original sin or the sin expunged by the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, but the very foundation of the fundamental institutions of American life, of excessive punishment and incarceration, of bureaucratic capitalism, of the traffic jams of Atlanta, and in your case, of, of American music? Do you, well, do you buy that expansive claim? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean... Some of like there's so many. I mean, you know, cutting room floor. There's a lot of things that wound up not being written about for this issue that that come out of slavery. You know, one of my things as a human being living in the world that I really hate having to participate in is tipping, and you know, thinking about where tipping comes from and how that is a direct that comes right out of of not wanting to pay black people to work on the railroads, for instance, and the the, the wage they got was up to the Whoa. up to the patrons who were on the trains to to think about the idea that so much of of the way that we pay Americans now comes right out of a system of not wanting to pay them at all it's just an amazing thing to think about there are so many different lanes here that are so useful i mean one is making sure we know what the real history of the country is um and not the one we tell ourselves uh and then make sure that we don't overcorrect and get everything straight and that's going to be you know a, a long process but it's beginning in a way that it hadn't before then bringing all these things forward to the present day is so important because this isn't something the effects of slavery and the reverberations are you know they are in our bones as a country and we don't we there are all these ways that it, uh, that the legacy is there and and lots of people don't know the way in which the legacy is there but i i also liked the argument nicole made which which i um find really compelling in frederick Douglass, but the idea basically that um those who were denied freedom in america were the strongest advocates for the freedom message of of america its original message which was of course so at odds with the way it was treating black americans or uh, they weren't americans but the way they were treating slaves the idea that that all men are created equal and that they have a right to revolution which was the other part of the 1776 mm-hmm. it's not just the natural rights of man that was um being ignored when it came to slaves who were who were there with Jefferson, I thought that was very powerful. Not only that he had his own slaves with him, but then Madison in in Philadelphia in 1787 has his slaves there. Uh, yes, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so I thought that the idea that the fight for Black Americans for equality is is a kind of um, you know built on that idea of natural rights is it, it kind of teaches America its own lesson in a way. I thought that was a great argument. Yeah, Nicole has this great phrase in her essay that where she talks about black Americans mm-hmm. as the perfectors of democracy. I really love that idea. And I think there is something optimistic and deeply patriotic about the way she's mm-hmm. approaching this whole question because she's saying these fundamental ideals, you know, they were a lie, but they were also ideals from the beginning. And that, you know, it, it black people, among many others, have done so much to 
like try to make us live up to those ideas. Um, someone else, I can't remember who, writing about Nicole's essay was talking about it as a patriotism of struggle as opposed to hagiography. And I, I love that formulation. And it also, for me, is why some of the criticism from conservatives has been actually really surprising to me that there hasn't been a recognition of that sense of like America, it can be great, has great threads in it, despite all of its problems. Mm -hmm. Instead, there mm -hmm. was just this sort of, I'm talking about figures like Newt Gingrich or this legal commentary, Ilya Shapiro um, on Twitter, Eric Erickson, just this like rejection of the whole premise and the notion that to look deeply into this history is itself too divisive. Like we're just supposed to Basically, like, pretend it's not there because our founding myths are more comforting for the country. And, you know, conservatives, especially in the legal sphere, are supposed to be really interested in constitutional <laughs> history and originalism and getting it right. And there was just something very striking and revealing to me about their rejection of this historical discussion in this context. It's just amazing to me that this can be partisanized in this particular way. Well, well I think, I mean, I would not... <laughs> remotely uh, defend a single thing that I've heard coming from Gingrich or Erickson or, or any of those people. I think it's, it's appalling, like the derision with which they've greeted this and the lack of seriousness with, seriousness with which they've taken it and patriotism. Like, I think, you know, it's, it's, it is a, it is a totally right and legitimate form of patriotism to sit, to focus on patriotism, the struggle on weakness, on sin, on mistake and acknowledging it is what gives power and acknowledging it is what allows the capacity for change. That said, I want to, I do think if people on the left need to be honest that they also, that the left is also happy when it's their time to tell lies to make themselves oh, feel yes. better. And so yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not just the right that wants to tell lies to make themselves feel better about the country. It's like that, or about something. It's the left is willing to do it for its particular set of issues. And I was trying to call, I mean, the, the one example that sprung to mind, which is an ancient example, and it's not that useful, but I'll just cite it just to give it, which is that the, the, the apologies, the left, the American left's apologies for what the Soviet Union was doing in, in the mid part of the century was terrible. I mean, they, they were, the people on the left were completely wrong. And, mm. you know, they should, you know, Stipulate. And, and so we should all be aware there's a strong tendency to tell the lies that make you feel better and to, to tell the truths that make you feel better and be aware of that as a, as, a, as a fault that we all have. Here's my theory, though, about why this particular question has taken on such urgency and like had this bite to it that I frankly didn't expect. You know, we have never as a country reckoned with not, I mean, slavery, yes, but also like Jim Crow and redlining and, you know, the taking of property from black Americans. It is such an enduring sin, right? It's not like an acute, terrible harm. Like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I mean, okay, the Holocaust, like terrible. I mean, I, yes, terrible. But like a moment in time, the Germans can then say, like, okay, we have paid reparations, we see this terrible wrong and evil that we did, and we've moved on to it. Like, it's, I mean, this is the point of the project. It's so interwoven into the fabric of our contemporary society. And I think that makes it deeply threatening. It's also why it's so important, right? Like, if you're going to talk about individual responsibility and, you know, the wealth gap between black and white people in America, can, like, in order to understand 
understand all these dynamics, you have to have this wider sweep of history. But once you have it, then you have all these like difficult questions about yeah, mass incarceration and who owns property and like who got the most screwed over by the financial crisis. They're all of these questions of inequality that persist that we have not dealt with. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different facets to to the various reactions. Part of it is that if you control the past, you control the present. So this uh, I can imagine some on the right. It looks like their reaction is this is an this is an act of special pleading. Rewrite the American story uh, to gain advantage in the present. If you read this, um, having spent a lot of time covering conservatives, you read this and it looks like the American story is one continuous parade of awfulness. I wonder, though, people who are not engaged in the ideological struggle, but who would just come to this um, in a state of kind of ignorance or newness, I do think that at some level they are being asked to change the source code of America, to change their understanding of the of the country. The idea, for example, that the, the uh, as Nicole writes, that the American Revolution was primarily because of slavery. I think people would think, well, what about Thomas Paine and the Tea Party and, you know, all of those things that, that was... So you're asking them basically to have a completely new understanding of a fundamental American thing. And then Lincoln's meeting with the uh, the freed, the, the free men, the five free men, which was, oh, you know, God. this... I went and, and yeah. read that. It is... It is awful, <laughs> but you can also, I mean, so people... Because he's telling them to leave the country, right? I just want to, like, flesh out why it's awful. It's a, it's, it is worth reading the whole thing. He's basically, yes, he's trying He's he's trying to get them to leave the country and, and, um, and kind of start a movement of leading the country because basically he argues that even if uh, blacks are freed, it's just not, slavery is such an evil that this just can't be fixed by everybody uh, living together. But I think... If you read only that about Lincoln, um, then you're being asked to have a wholly new understanding of Lincoln, which is Lincoln is a much more nuanced figure. I mean, and and that whole period of the Civil War and the, and where slavery fit in the beginning when the before the first shot was fired to, you know, the end of the 15th Amendment. My favorite quote about Lincoln um, and sort of how one has to think about him is. Uh, viewed from the ingenuine abolition ground, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent. But measuring him by the sentiment of his country, a sentiment he was bound as a statesman to consult, he was swift, zealous, radical, and determined. So, you know, there is a complexity to him and to this story, which I think some people uh, taking this at the first cut will think is has... Um, you know, it, it, it might be missing. That might be part of what some of the reaction is. Again, that's not the reaction that you, you got from Gingrich. I'm, I'm just talking about, you know, others. That was Frederick Douglass, by the way, describing Lincoln. There's something about talking about this stuff that is just, it's just so loaded. And I, you know, I've been at dinner parties with people where you sort of tell them this thing that you read. And I mean, and this is to your dear point, David. I mean, it's, it's liberal people too who do not want to talk about this stuff. I'm just really curious about what like your you guys and your lives are like when it comes to thinking about the ways in which this stuff is still present and the degrees to which you are aware and or not aware or like yeah. how hard it is to talk about it. I I think I mean I I think this this magazine issue and I presume there'll be other things to follow will be 
very important in the way that I think Tanahasi's article from a couple of years ago genuinely for me made me see the world in a different way. Like I, I it took blinders off of the me. Reparations What's that? The reparations, reparations yes. article, which which the sort of said the case yeah. for reparations is not merely that slavery was the the crime that it was, but that it it is a crime that persists up into unto the present day, and here are all the ways in which it does. And this issue does a lot of that same work from a even more historical you know perspective and looking at different aspects of American life. So I. I think it's been revelatory. I where where I have a hard harder time is like coming to practical policy provisions. Maybe you start to change people's hearts or try, start to change how people are taught and then policy will change coming out of it. But, you know, we're not in this Congress in this presidency we're not going to have reparations. So I have two thoughts about that, though. There is some low-hanging policy fruit, right? Like just making it easier to vote (laughs) would go some way, right? I mean, just like having better social benefits, which would not merely – you don't even have to make it, you know, merely for black people at all to address some of these inequalities and these continuing – reverberations. So I feel like we, right? I mean, there are these harder questions and then there are like some that actually there's a lot of support for and they're pretty easy. And, you know, shrinking the criminal justice system and ending mass incarceration is in there too. Like these are things that there is increasing support for throughout the country. And it's just important not to make it feel like it's such a heavy lift. I The other reaction I had to this issue, and I think this is like because I live in a college town, I'm surrounded by academics. There are just some great thinking and debating about history that is coming out of this project, like particularly a thread about – the importance of the cotton industry, mm-hmm. whether the essay about this, which is by Matt Desmond, like overstates this. There's a whole academic scholarship, like decades of really intense arguing and fighting going on in the academy about that. I'm not an expert on it, but I love seeing that that's like out there in with a higher profile in the um, kind of public sphere for people to think through. Like those are interesting questions to debate that have not necessarily been like at the forefront. And I, I just love – I feel like this is like a uh, – if you were participating in it, it's like a national conversation that feels like a classroom. I mm-hmm. had that same reaction, Emily, which is like, well, I guess there's been a bunch of scholarship that I haven't – that I didn't know that there was this – there were these people in the colonists who felt pressure from Britain because I thought Britain didn't get rid of its uh, slave trade until the – until the, much later. Wesley, let's give you the last word here. Is there anything in the response to your piece – in particular that surprised or delighted you the the response has been like to my piece in particular has been has been positive nicole was very interested in me writing something that was more optimistic than some of the other pieces in the issue and music was the thing that was just the most obvious to me like the creation of american popular culture is also like a strangely perversely integrated act in white people dressing themselves as black people to perform as black people and so many and you know minstrelsy had so many different phases that you know it wasn't only that they were doing black music they were doing the polka and irish and doing songs about black people to irish melodies and sometimes just singing irish songs themselves minstrelsy itself is such a crazy cultural phenomenon and it was 
the most popular form of entertainment and the most exciting thing that America's Americans could go experience, you know, for 40 or 50 years. But the thing that's been surprising to me in the response to at least what I wrote is just how many people are simultaneously moved by the idea of, of this being a great American contribution on behalf of black people in our culture, but also this idea that, that there's not a lot this country can really do to stop a kind of mixing from happening, despite, you know, so much legislation to stop it from happening. And, you know, even to this day, I mean, you know, there are, I eat in segregated, what are essentially segregated restaurants, <laughs> you know, I mean, you go into some places and there are, there are only white people dining there and it isn't because you're in an all white city, town or neighborhood. Um, and so the idea that American popular culture is just so sort of inexorably mixed, it is moving in, in, a, in a really sort of special and curious way. Part of it, part of the, the 1619 project thing that's so moving for me is like, we are at a really amazing vantage 400 years out to see the pros and cons, the yeses and nos, the ways in which, as Emily put it, the, the, the enduring aspects of, of slavery, um, the work that we still have to do, the things that we don't want to talk about, the trauma we live with, the trauma we don't want to deal with. We can see all those things. And I guess the question before us now is what do we do with what we can see? Wesley Morris, staff writer for The Times Magazine and critic for The New York Times, part of the 1619 Project, which was The Times Magazine special issue last week. Please read it. Wesley, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Slate Plus is such a great membership program, and it's going to be especially great for members this week because we're going to hit Greenland. We're going to talk about the Greenland spat. And more specifically, we're going to help President Trump out. If we cannot buy Greenland, which it seems like we won't be able to, what should we buy? Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Business Roundtable, an organization that consists of the CEOs of about 200 of the largest American corporations, reversed a decades-long policy this past week. They announced 
that the purpose of a corporation is no longer simply to serve its shareholders and to maximize the value of shareholder holdings, but rather it is to serve the interests of all stakeholders. Stakeholders is one of these happy words, euphemisms coined recently, or maybe not that recently, but coined in the past century, which implies not just the shareholders, but also employees, consumers, the community served by uh, by the corporation, the community the corporation lives in. And now, according to the Business Roundtable, these companies, these big American companies, are going to help the, help all those stakeholders out, not just their shareholders. Emily, is this even legal, what the Business Roundtable is proposing to do? I am so excited you started with that question because when I first saw this proposal, I thought, wait a second. When I was taking business organizations in law school, though those many years ago, what I learned was that there is a legal duty to put shareholders first. So I went and read back up about this. Luckily, uh, Jordan Weissman in Slate uh, addresses this issue, which I feel like a lot of the coverage has just kind of skipped over. So the way the law works in Delaware, which is where almost all these corporations are incorporated, is that, you know, you have to recognize as a corporation that the reason you exist is to generate value for shareholders. The 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 out here is what's called the business judgment rule, which courts generally, and including in Delaware, have recognized that if you can say that you're doing something like raising pay or making a charitable donation because you think it's in the long term um, interest of the company, you can do those things even if they don't serve the absolute short-term bottom line. And there's a f- fair amount of def- deference to corporate executives in that context. But it is important to remember that, you know, f- Milton Friedman enshrined this um, principle of economic self-interest, a kind of, I would say, like atavistic um, notion of capitalism into the philosophical thinking about how corporations are supposed to operate when they're for profit. But there's also a kind of legal corollary to this. So the business executives, the CEOs have wiggle room here, but there is this kind of legal question that um, you're right to raise. And the reason this would matter is presumably if a company behaved in this uh, stakeholder, not shareholder way, a shareholder could sue under the laws of Delaware uh, and and get some kind of um, remedy, right? right? That's That's why it matters. Yeah, absolutely. And there are um, shareholders, you know, often they're called activist shareholders who try to get a company to do something. It it maybe they're trying to make them be more short term profit oriented as opposed to more like socially welfare oriented. But whichever way they go, if they're totally ignored and the corporation says basically screw you, like you can get then a, a suit can be brought successfully against that kind of conduct. I am the CEO of a Delaware C Corp. I would just like to point that out. I, Damn. I, uh, it is not a publicly held <laughs> Delaware C Corp, but I have shareholders. And it's, what's interesting to me as a as somebody who thinks about this in a small way, not I don't have to serve. Uh, as I said, I don't serve public shareholders. I serve you know the private shareholders who have invested and own pieces of Atlas Obscura. Is that there is this? I think it is. It's it's very possible when you have certain kind a certain small company to say. This company certainly is existing to maximize value for shareholders. That is the purpose of Atlas Obscura. It's a purpose, you know, that's my goal. At the same time, what Emily pointed out, that business judgment is a big piece of it, that you can say one way we're going to maximize value for shareholders is we're going to make this a really attractive place to work. It's going to help us attract better talent. People are going to have such a great time working here. That in the long run is going to make 
Atlas Obscura much more valuable, or it's going to make the brand, it's going to give a halo to the brand that is Atlas Obscura, and thus will make the company more, more valuable. So there is, I think there is a, a great degree of latitude for CEOs, or there is a degree of latitude for CEOs of companies to to uh, try things which aren't immediately we're maximizing shareholder value, the stock price in the next in the next week we're, that we're, that it's something that's looking at the long haul. Um, that said, uh, I found this statement extremely irritating, extremely irritating, and I would like us to get at why. I, Do tell, I'm, please. We want to hear well, about your irritation. Oh, John, go and tell me why I was irritated by it. Maybe you weren't irritated. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I think I, we got to go with your mojo on this. But I, I, there are a few things outside of the irritation box I want to get back to. But, but please uh, go. Well, I, Be I irritated. Think virtue signaling is such a, a disease of our time, and it's a corporate disease, especially. It's these co- corporations which which have found clever ways to sort of present themselves as being allied with some good cause or some nice interest for a brief period in a way that doesn't particularly hurt them. And they, they, they do this a lot. Meanwhile, are they actually working to mitigate the incredibly baleful effects of, of things like economic inequality, things like uh, climate change, things like the you know, racial tension in the, in the country? They're not. And so this is, a, this is an example of something where the Business Roundtable has, has issued this statement. They said, we're going to work for stakeholders. Number one, as Emily has pointed out, they legally can't really do it. They, they would have to change Delaware law. So this is purely a superficial well, wait, statement. I, I, thought, I thought she said they had discretion. Just they have some, some discretion, discretion but, in a but, limited they, way. But they're, they're at risk of the – and if they, if they said – if they made it as a matter of policy, if, if BlackRock as a matter of policy, if BlackRock is a Delaware C-Corp, and as a matter of policy they said we're serving the interests of stakeholders now, they would get sued in one second. They can do it on the margins as long as they also don't say explicitly mm-hmm. they're doing it. But they can't actually literally make it their, their pursuit unless they turn themselves into a B-Corp, a benefit public benefit corporation, which is designed to, to actually – serve a larger interest. So number one is that, they, that, that I, they actually can't do it. Number two is they. if you look at these companies in general, they have not opened themselves up to specific policies that really help their stakeholders. They're not pushing for unionization. They're not pushing for higher minimum wages for the most part. It's just speech. This is just pure speech and it's, and it's, and it's virtue signaling speech. And, and then finally, I think there's this idea that, oh, well, let's look back to the 1950s and 60s corporations. American corporations were much better citizens of the country, uh, had happier workers. Uh, and, you, you know, that, that's because the co- corporate CEOs were acting, you know, in this stakeholder-oriented way. That's not really true. What it was is that we had laws that made unions much more powerful. We had power, the power of labor was significantly greater because there was much less globalization, so it was harder to relocate manufacturing. And there was a culture... There was much less of a culture of CEO greed. If I could point at one thing that I find – I mean, this, sorry, this is going, I'm going on and on here. But one <laughs> thing I find particularly baleful and hypocritical about all of this is that, that among the biggest shifts that's happened in, in how big corporations are run is that CEOs and boards of directors of publicly held companies have just gotten greedy as fuck. They're so greedy. And the expectation of what you as a CEO can get paid is – Outrageous. So, in fact, corporations aren't actually run for the benefit of shareholders for the most part. They're run for the benefit of the top management, particularly the CEOs. I just find that the kind of extremely public, oh, we're gonna, we're going to 
you know, now really work for the benefit of the community that we're located in. Just just so much hot air and show me some real work. Show me some labor that you're doing to that end. Show me some actual policy changes that, mm-hmm. that hurt you as CEO. Then I'll listen. Mm-hmm. I'm done now. So, uh, so, and that's our show to for today, folks. Um, so the highest paid 100 chief executives make 254 times the salary of employees receiving the median pay at their companies. So that's one little fact along the lines of what you're talking about, David. Um, which is outrageous, the- which is absolutely outrageous. Mm-hmm. It is out I, – I can't even – it's for those it's For those of you who might have missed – those of I, you who might I have mistaken, David, he is in the outrageous category. The other, the other thing, though, about the business roundtable is uh, what you say, David, is is right. It's a, it's a happy letter and, and you know, the, the proof will be in the, in the actual pudding. But there is a way in which um, the business roundtable – what does the business roundtable do? It lobbies essentially for um, uh, for these for business. And during the tax debate, one of the things that's being talked about is whether one of the stakeholder obligations were this all to go into effect would be whether the business roundtable and the companies therein would have to do things uh, for the benefit uh, um, of future generations. So in other words, they would pay more attention to things that might affect future generations. So in that context, the business roundtable Um, was a part of the negotiation in the last tax bill. So if you look at the new budget numbers in the Congressional Budget Office, the deficits and debt are going to be even larger than they previously um, estimated. And in part, that's because it's because of the tariffs, but it's also in part because the revenue that came in from the tax cut was not as big as they, as certainly the administration had claimed um, or that they first thought. Well, that affects future generations. And that tax cut and the size of it was something that the Business Roundtable argued for, which is to say should be larger, a larger corporate tax cut. So just specifically within the things that the Business Roundtable has done, there's the letter writing, and then there's the working on getting a bigger tax cut, which has this effect on future generations. Now, of course, they would argue that um, there are all kinds of benefits to having the tax cut. But I guess my point is that what you say, David, is exactly right, which is this is just a letter. But there are things they do that's more than a letter, which is to say advocate in the halls of Congress for their particular positions. And would they throw their muscle behind anything that would be in this sort of stakeholder category? Um, I don't know that they I don't know that they would. Um, uh, So I'll stop there. I would add just one other thing, David, I think what you say is probably right. But I wonder if in the context of the presidential campaign on the Democratic side, where obviously there's a lot of conversation about how to manage uh, capitalism in a way that um, uh, spreads prosperity more broadly and uh, ameliorates some kind of a, some of the effects of income inequality. Whether this is an acknowledgement to a larger social force um, that uh, means that force is taking on greater salience in the public conversation than it used to be, uh, say four years ago or eight years ago. Whether so, forget the actual. Um, facts of the case here, but is this a signal uh, of um, the the fact that maybe the Overton window has opened a tiny bit on managing capitalism rather than uh, Milton Friedman Friedman capitalism? Well, I I think that's a great question, John. Actually, I I want Emily's thoughts on this as it relates to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in in a minute. There's an excellent column by Farhad Manju in the New York Times uh, today about this, which is that if you are one reason why the CEOs are are saying this right now is that they're scared. And I remember a quote from a, there was some billionaires conference earlier this year 
talking about the level of inequality in the in the country in the country and this some super rich guy who's a smart person was saying when you have levels of inequality like this it ends in two ways it ends in it ends in reformation or it ends in revolution and so we better right. g- make it end in reformation not revolution because i was amazed at in the 2010 2000 whatever 2008 2007 2008 financial crisis just there were that there were no heads on pikes that there was so so little actual punishment of the villains who drove the country into this terrible recession and i'm not sure that the next time that happens there that america's corporate sector is going to get off so easily i just think i just think like people are very sick of the benefits of everything flowing to right. the richest, the most powerful. And this is an argument that uh, Ben Bernanke and, and uh, Tim Geithner and Hank Paulson, who were the firefighters who put together the deal, uh, the TARP deal, essentially, to, to address the problems of the 2007-2009 recession. This is an argument they make now, which is that the ability of policymakers to respond to another emergency, wherever it comes from, will be significantly constrained by the fact that all the income inequality that all, that killed the first TARP vote in the House and almost killed the whole thing, uh, it was that's only gotten worse, and uh, that populist anger is going to, you know, obviously affects members of Congress. They then won't want to vote for the measures that in the whatever the next emergency is that uh, that solves the emergency. So it, it hamstrings the dealing with the next emergency. And then one other tiny point is the Fed is looking at rules to relax the. Um, the cash requirements for big banks and the FDIC just uh, changed some of the regulations on the Volcker rule, which um, both of which were put in place after the mortgage-backed securities crisis to try to keep another one from happening. And what Bernanke says is that the danger will be forgetting that 10 years plus after that uh, collapse, everybody's going to forget. Everybody's going to say, let's loosen up these credit requirements. These stress tests are too stressful. And that once you do that, you create potentially you create the conditions um, for another issue. I just want to say it is a bit rich to be for. I mean, sure, Bernanke, Paulson, Geithner, they can like come in here and act like wise men now. But at the time, they did so too little and were so unwilling to really hold CEOs accountable, even to hold the government accountable. Um, And this is an Elizabeth Warren moment. She was trying to get more insight into how the Treasury Department was actually implementing the TARP funds. Geithner didn't want to go public with any of that. And then it turned out that almost all the money was going to these, you know, too big to fail institutions as opposed to smaller banks. And that is like such a good example of capitalism and government run amok in America. I guess the other thing, point I wanted to make when you were talking earlier about, you know, what corporations could actually do is it's as simple as encouraging unionizing, which is probably the last thing most of these companies are really willing to encourage. But fundamentally, what's happened is that the balance of power between management and labor has just gotten thrown wildly off course. And that's partly about a weakness in American labor law. It's partly about, you know, the cultural decline of private sector unions. And what we really need now is sectoral bargaining. Like we need a way for workers to have to exercise real power and muscle across a whole industry so that corporations can't pit them against each other company to company. And the way to start down that line is to make it easier to organize, which is something that some of the Democratic candidates like Sanders and Warren have been emphasizing, but that hasn't like caught enough fire yet, I think, in the political debate because unionized have been unions, I think, have been become, 
you know, a matter of partisan politics The in a way that I think is like really bad for workers. These right to work laws in states like Michigan and Wisconsin have caused a lot of chaff to fly up in the air. Anyway, if people are really sick of inequality, there are these obvious levers to pull that other countries are much more successful, like Germany, in pulling. And we just have to, you know, decide that this is something that, like, we the body politic want. So last question to either of you. Do you think that this business roundtable letter will, in fact, lead to any actual structural change in how American corporations, big corporations operate? And if it does or doesn't, will that actually uh, – uh, have any beneficial effect on society as a whole. Well, it- I don't think the letter in itself is going to do anything. But to the extent it reflects fear, political fear, like John was saying, then it's possible that there are enough forces um, at work that it'll matter. But it's really just about electoral politics. Like, People don't have an obvious way to make corporations change. You know, you can talk about boycotts, but that's really hard to bring about. And shareholder activism also is like very specific and narrow route. So what we really need is like a change in the political structure and and in our laws. And those come about through elected officials. We see some individual companies um, separate and apart from, although some of them may be members of the business roundtable, making decisions that would be uh, loosely that would loosely qualify in this stakeholder um, category. So, for example, the car companies are um, stiff-arming the president on the emissions requirements that he's trying to give them, make things easier for them, and they're all um, agreeing with California to um, have stricter emissions. Apple, for example, one of the members of the Business Roundtable, has uh, recycling and energy policies that are at the cutting edge of of green technology. So individual companies are definitely doing the things that are in that are they're doing more, much more than this letter suggests. But that's who so what if Apple so, has recycling extent, policies, John? So what? Apple's not a small company um, and people it's do It's very fall. much at the margins though. I mean the notion that they're really going to do all of this in some well, big way on their own. Well, I'm just so Are they skeptical. putting so their lobbying already... muscle in Washington to like act to say we're you know we're not going to do anything until there's a huge, you know, energy tax or well, so, we're, you know so, we're Right. So the car companies are doing what they're doing, right? So they are they have made agreements with California to abide by the emissions restrictions in California. So that is something that is being done and has done. Um, because so the California the Apple, held a gun to their head because they can't do business well, unless they do business in California. It's not that they that car companies well, like, oh, we want to we really want what California wants. It's California said, no, suck it. California and 13 other states said, suck it. You're going to do this if you want to do business in California. And they're like, OK, we'll do it. Well, that's great. Sure, that's another and interesting point, but it wasn't the point I was making. I was just saying the question was: Is any of this going to happen? And the and the point is: Yes, it's happening with individual companies in other ways. Um, I think also company car companies um, recognize some benefit to the fact that people um, want greener technology in their cars. That people are buying cars that are electric and that are hybrids. Um, that there's a market benefit to doing that. There, this is the reason they make the cars. It's not, they're not making those cars just because California wants better emissions. When the biggest movers in the market do things, it affects other people in the market. So I think if Apple is doing things on their own, it's not going to have no effect on every other company. That 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 seems unlikely given the effect Apple has had across you know all of American culture and global right. culture. We're, we're going to save that for another day because I'm, I'm so... 
I'm so worked up over that. The, the idea that Apple's recycling policy is actually <laughs> beneficial to the world it seems to me like a stretch. But let's save well, it. So let's it's, save but it. So you're saying you said wait, so marginally beneficial. There can be market When Apple forces. does things, it, it, it has no right. effect on the market. No, what I'm saying None. is that Apple has picked something which is super virtue signaling. Well, that's fine. But recycling that's, is super well, but, virtue signaling. It's not even clear that there's a market for recycling in the world at all. Well, no, but it's not even clear I, that recycling no, no, is no, good. No, no, no. But I'm talking about right now because like nobody can figure out how I'm to make about it work. Not, it's not just recycling. I'm talking about you know powering their their new office with um, you know with renewable energy and um, having the air conditioning systems be uh, recycled and doing all the, all of the stuff they've done with their new headquarters is state of the art in terms of having a and all the trees they planted around there. All the stuff they're doing is trying to create. A, a small or zero carbon footprint. I feel like you're talking about like the embroidery when like they're also creating all these products that suck well, up that, a huge amount right. of energy and change well, no, this is not an average <laughs> in that direction, right? And so like to spend a lot of time. I'm not. Like, I'm not trying know, to make the case. I don't. It I'm just, just feels out of proportion case to me. That companies individually are doing things that are more I, than writing a letter. I, but John, so if what you're saying they're saying not that doing anything, that then, you're you're falling into the trap. But it's you're like, like you're falling into. Their no, virtue signaling. Here, no, no. I will stipulate not, they then, do. Let's no, let's let's still just stipulate for the tax this. cuts and still not demanding That's, carbon taxes. Sure, I'm not saying that they're. I'm not saying that they're like these perfect beings. The question on the table was: Are is any of this going to happen? My my point is: There are things happening within individual companies which neither of you are refuting. What you're saying is it's not enough, which is totally true. Let's, let's leave it there. <laughs> but if you want to have the argument you're having with yourselves, oh, that's, have at it. That's so disingenuous. That's not... You're no, si- you're like, your emphasis is just like so credulous. No, it's not. I just... It's no, like, net. Oh, look, like they're doing all these no, no. great things. Just no, giving no. the attention no, no. to it without not the true. context of all the stuff they're not doing is frustrating to listen to. Stipulated. They're not doing a lot of stuff they could be doing. I'm just saying they're doing something other than that's more than letter writing. Marginally. Fine. Uh, okay. I'm not even going to give him the benefit of saying the okay there, Emily, but that's nice of you to do it. <laughs> I cannot defend <laughs> positions you guys think I have that I don't you hold. Always, you're, that's oh your line. Oh, my God. You're, like, 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 oh, you're not screw- owning your own positions here, though. Like, you want to make the point, and then you make it, and then you're like, I'm just da-da-da, as if, like, you're some neutral. No, you're, like, making an argument whether you want to admit it or not. I'm making an argument that goes, like, two feet and you're saying that i'm making an argument that goes 100 yards it's not so all right here we go leave that in jocelyn all of that all of it across a variety of fronts in recent weeks we are seeing the trump administration pursue policies through regulation or through fiat or through blocking things that do not express um the will of congress or do not express the will of the people at least the will of the people as measured by polls the president has now rejected pursuing background checks for gun owners. He has effectively pursued regulatory policies that have compelled Planned Parenthood to get out of taking any government funds anymore. Emily will get into that. No, 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 not all government funds. Title 10 funds, important distinction, because they're still entitled to state funds for public health benefits. I just... No, no, what you say you Um, have to, it has to, you have to agree to everything. It uh, has to be the case forevermore. Oh, somebody, somebody's uh, gotten under somebody's skin. (laughs) 
<laughs> Bitter. Somebody's come back from Ireland a little bit, a little bit raw. No, no, you're not. No, you're not allowed to modify to what you say. <laughs> uh, he is con- to continue on. Uh, the administration has changed longstanding policies, regulatory policies about asylum, and is about to change policies policies about families and immigrant detention. Uh, it is pushing uh, onward drilling, the Alaskan refuge drilling that is not economic, economically beneficial, but saying that it is economically beneficial. It is trying to roll back car pollution regulations that that the car companies seem to want. In general, the administration seems to be pursuing a whole bunch of policies that are favored by a small minority of voters, uh, often a vanishingly small minority of voters, or some niche niche industry in ways that they could never get the public to approve or they could never get congressional action to approve. So, um, Emily, there's a bunch of different examples. I, I, I sort of feel there's a theme there. But um, I hope so. Do you want to do you want to start with the the Planned Parenthood issue and how that kind of manifests uh, this or it helps explain this? Yeah, I mean, one of the most effective takeovers of government by like the hard rate in American politics is at the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, you know, we hear and mock about Trumpian incompetence, but these folks are competent and they have really changed the emphasis in HHS about uh, everything from, you know, providing funds for sex education to these questions of helping poor women pay for STD tests and, you know, breast cancer screenings. And there's this new rule, um, pro-choice advocates call it a gag rule, where the Trump administration is saying that in order to be eligible for this Title X funding for poor, low-income women, you have to agree not to advise them about abortion services. From the point of view of a healthcare provider like Planned Parenthood that thinks of abortion as part of the spectrum of reproductive care, you're being asked to give ill-informed, incomplete medical advice, and they're just not willing to do that. And so they have withdrawn from the Title X plan. And what that means is that, they, well, they're currently the recipients of about 40 percent of Title X funding. And so there are going to be places in the country where women have to travel much longer distances to get not abortion care, but just like basic you know, healthcare services because the Planned Parenthood clinic is not going to be able to offer it for free to them anymore. There are a couple places like Minnesota and Utah where almost every clinic that accepts Title Fund, Title X patients is a Planned Parenthood facility. And so, look, Planned Parenthood is popular when you, like, ask voters, but it has been a target of the anti-abortion movement for obvious reasons for a long time. And they've worked really hard to get this rule in place. And now it's going to probably go into effect. There's a court challenge going on, but it's probably going to fail, in my view, based on what I would argue is a bad Supreme Court decision from years ago, which says that if the government is making funding contingent on some kind of government-required speech, that that's basically okay. Like, this is the government saying, well, if you want our money, you have to deliver the message the way we say you should deliver it. I don't think that's the right reading of the First Amendment. But unless it changes, like, this is what you get when you elect the Trump administration. But why that? But if something's constitutionally protected, as abortion is, then why can the government compel for the purpose of getting paid or given taxpayer money, why can the government tell you how to speak when it's something that's been uh, when the subject about which they're telling you to speak has been ruled to be within the Constitution? 
That is an excellent question, and I would argue that you are making the winning argument. But when this came up in front of the Supreme Court in a 5-4 to four decision, the court ruled in the other direction. So until that changes, which isn't looking super plausible right now given the current composition of the court, that appears to be the law. It's not settled. There are more um, you know, rounds of hearings and adjudication in the Ninth Circuit, which is hearing this case. But that's, yes, an excellent question. And so— since the other issue David raised was about guns, um, I mean, imagine that this was the Obama administration and they or maybe there is a case and I've forgotten it. Uh, and they're instructing people on I can't I can't figure out how to carry this analogy forward. But you see where I'm going, instructing mm. people not to yeah. talk about their right to bear arms in a context where that would be an obvious thing to talk about. Um Maybe the analogy is just not worth even raising. Yeah, but. I mean, right. Like, presumably the same rule would apply. Hard mm-hmm. to try quite make the hypothetical work where you see an opposite um, kind of effect. And uh, the case I was talking about is in the context of reproductive rights. That's where it comes up a lot, healthcare information. Um, but, I mean, like, in theory, it would apply in that context. And also, this isn't that much of a niche thing. I mean, it's still 20% of the country is, is against abortion in all circumstances. So it's not like it's a tiny... It's not yeah. kind of like it's a tiny. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I I phrased that badly in my intro, John. I guess I meant more that that these are in general the stuff that's going on with Planned Parenthood, with background checks, with these car pollution regs, family, family separation. separation. It's, like, it's certainly not the, okay. these are not things which you could get a congressional majority to approve in, in probably in either house, and you certainly don't have like significant majorities in of the people who would approve it in polling. These are pursuing interests which are minority interests. Now, they're strongly held minority interests, I suppose. Well, and that's why they're they're being pursued because they're strongly held by the base of the Well, actually, but actually I want to ask about that. Let me dig in because when you think about – so certainly with the background checks, there's a strongly held and with with the abortion rights issues, those are very strongly held. But if you look at like these car uh, car pollution where the – Trump administration is trying to force car companies to basically not make their cars more <laughs> efficient to get to, to keep their cars at lower gas mileages. And the car companies are saying, nah, because we've got to abide by these California, these rules that California have put in. Um, that's not something anybody wants, really. That nobody, Everyone wants cars to be more efficient. It's good for everybody for cars to be more efficient, um, except some tiny, tiny set of industry people with some weird, you know, extractive industry people who want more gas consumed. People want less pollution. Like the, those cars are cheaper to build. They're cheaper, you know, they're cheaper to buy. It's going to save billions, hundreds of billions of dollars for car consumers. So I don't even understand why, what, the, what that is except kind of malice or, or something. Why, why are they doing that? Well, it's part of the environmental deregulation, which is a huge project of the EPA right now. I mean, you see it on all number of fronts about allowing coal plants to operate, about changing the rules for mercury in the water, the Endangered Species Act. Like there is it may be quite niche, but there is a really <laughs> devoted industry lobby behind. Changing Can you imagine all being the person rules? who wants mercury, more mercury in the water? Like well, it all comes. Yeah, but no, those people make an argument that like these environmental regulations are just tying right. them up in red tape. They're super expensive, and that like the way they were setting the mercury levels yeah. was too protective and didn't really accomplish. They 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 yes, you course. know create. Yeah. They don't believe in the science, yeah, that right? And also, does, it's the job killers. So you want you know, especially if the economy is about to go south, you want 
you want to be able to say, I, here I am fighting and the, and the liberal crazies in California are doing things that are going to hurt, um, you know, uh, kill jobs in America. Whether any of that's true or not, that, that seems to be a fight that you would be fine to have if you're, if you're this president. But um, all of the, the deregulation stuff, that the, what's going on at HHS and absolutely what's happening uh, at the EPA are, as Emily said, it's where actually the administration is best, like, is arguably doing more than any previous administration, in part because it was all handed off to a group of people from the get-go who knew exactly what to do. And it's the way in which when we change presidents, since nothing can get done in Congress anymore, what will happen is the ne- if there's whoever the Democratic nominee is, there will be a team of lawyers who will prepare a binder full of executive orders and administrative actions that would go into place the minute that Democrat gets elected president to undo all of this. And we we have this situation now where you undo and do and undo. It used to only happen with the Mexico City abortion rules. Now it happens because so much of this has to happen through the administrative state because nothing happens through Congress. So this is another perversion of the fact that we have um, such a messed up system. A sclerotic legislature. It's totally good. Yeah, actually that... Do either does either party have a real principled stance on whether regulation is okay, and whether whether action through regulation is okay? I, it feels to me that people are sure. simply opportunistic that when they are in power, they're okay with using executive action regulation, and when they're not in power, they think it's an abomination and it should be the legislature. But is either party more consistent? I mean, well, there's a great sort of tension here, right? Which is that. You know, especially like in legal circles, there is this push right now to dismantle the administrative state and really change the um, whole system we've had in place since the New Deal to like, you know, cut down the federal government as a way of deregulating. On the other hand, a lot of those people are big believers in executive power. And if you just like cut all the agencies off at the knees, it's not quite clear outside of war powers how the president operates in this like very extremely powerful version of the presidency. So there's an interesting tension there. I think among Democrats, there is this sort of you know, post-New Deal increasing recognition that the federal administrative agencies are really important for making rules and laws for the country. But there was, it didn't used to be an ideological split entirely, right? Like Justice Scalia wrote one of the opinions that created the most deference to agencies. And there were liberals who were really skeptical about turning all this power over to the government and whether the government was going to be captured by industry in a way that made that dangerous. Um last thought here before we go. Well, my last thought is that on some of these issues, particularly abortion and gun rights, I think we're used to the notion that conservatives care more and are more likely to vote in single issue or primary ways um, based on these their concerns. And so even if, um, you know, polls show majority support for more gun regulation or for abortion being legal most of the time, it doesn't really matter because it's just less salient. That is starting to shift. In the last couple of years, for the first time, it's Democrats who actually rank abortion and reproductive access higher than Republicans in their voting priorities. And I think on the front of gun rights and gun control, too, you see like an increasing sense of urgency on the left. And maybe that will change the political picture and make these uh, issues that that help Democrats as opposed to Republicans in 2020. We will see. You also have an uh, interesting thing to watch there in the split between abortion rights are rights that exist and are endangered as opposed right. to 
gun legislation, which would be things to be put in place just in terms of how that affects um, because there's the political science on when, when yes. rights are being taken away from people, mm-hmm. they are much more active than uh, when something's being put in place because you, you, as a voter, you think, well, is that really going to happen? Yada, yada. The other, you see a clear, L- clear loss aversion. something you, you People hate have. loss aversion. Yes, right. there you go. There you go. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are trying to avert a loss of your a loss of your sobriety, or you're trying to increase a loss of your sobriety, not avert it. Uh, what will you be chattering about, John Dickerson? I will be chattering about, um, uh, as I finish my book, I've been spending a lot of time uh, thinking, thinking about Eisenhower. Um, Is that a euphemism, thinking about Eisenhower? I was thinking about Eisenhower. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, and I came across this... Um, Eisenhower was this just is fascinating in a bunch of different ways, but he was a famous hothead. Um, they used to call him Mr. Bang Bang. He had this red hot temper and he through his whole life struggled with it. And he had these various um, kind of very strict um, ways of sort of controlling himself. And he applied this to other parts of his life, including when he quit smoking. And when he quit in 1949, he said that he just gave himself an order and then he just stopped smoking and he was that kind of guy but it turns out he had this other very weird thing he did so he gave himself an order and that didn't work so he wrote this what he did then was he put in his office he just loaded it up with cigarettes and matches and ashtrays and so then he said basically i decided to make a game of the whole business to try to achieve a feeling of some superiority when i saw others smoking while i no longer did so i stuffed cigarettes in every pocket put them around the office on the desk in other accessible areas and had cigarette lighters instantly available i made it a practice to offer a cigarette to anyone who came in and lighted each while mentally reminding myself as i sat down i don't have to do what that poor fellow is doing presidents are not like us that's amazing <laughs> That's an amazing Crazy. story. And it worked. And yeah. it worked. That worked. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, Follow Emily. that. Basil. I read an essay this week, which um, I just thought was so fierce, but also gentle and honest. It's by Lisa Miller. It's in The Cut in New York Magazine for their fashion issue. It's called Dressing for a Wound, How My Body and I Reconciled After a Mastectomy. I, I just think there are a lot of people who in the course of their lives, have to ask themselves the sort of central question that Lisa Miller asks here, what do you wear when your body no longer resembles itself? And she just goes through this, like, very um, candid explanation of her sort of own trajectory on thinking about her mastectomy and how she wanted her body to look afterward and what to do about clothing it in the meantime and going from a sense, I think, of sort of betrayal um, of her body not doing what it had done well for a long time into a kind of reconciliation. So I really recommend this essay. It's lovely. My chatter is about well, it's about the HBO show Succession, which if you're not watching, you should definitely be watching. It's an amazing, amazing show. Danielle is nodding vigorously outside the studio here. Uh, I don't, yes. Are you guys, either of you watching it? No, but no, I have Succession? yet another yeah. thing I should be so, watching. You're so behind, John. I don't know how you could ever catch up. You're just going to have to like skip it all and just like I'm just, start. I'm going to have to declare start. television bankruptcy. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I, I don't want to just talk about Succession. I want to talk about, in particular, the show is about... Um, there are two news organizations that sort of pervade it or run through it. One is 
called ATN, which is a version of Fox News. And the other uh, recently is called Valter, which is a version of Vice, which is like a kind of fictional version of Vice. And I just want to call out the headlines that appear. So you'll see kind of headlines on the web or headlines on chirons on the TV screen that will be in ba- in the background, never observed, no one ever talks about it, that are just just so great. And so the ones in the fake vice, in fact, there's, there's various articles that have been written about how great the ones in the fake vice are. Like, so five reasons why drinking milk on the toilet is kind of a game changer. Or meet the world's richest people trafficker. He's a surprisingly nice guy. Uh, anyway, those headlines are great. And then the ones, I actually think the ones that are on the fake Fox is even better. My favorite of which was gender fluid illegals may be entering the U.S. twice. <laughs> which is just like, I just thought like, like that Not captures everything. something so perfect, <laughs> perfect hilarious. about everything. It's, uh, so I, I recommend watching the show and then paying attention in the background as TV screens. I feel like that's going to be a Tucker Carlson segment like next week. Definitely. definitely. Matt, when I worked Carlson at segment. Time Magazine, Matt Cooper uh, used to come up with what Time Magazine cover would, would check all of the boxes of their of – their, and so healthcare ones and religious ones oh, um, yeah. and like culture of the moment covers always did really well. So I don't think this was one of his, but it was something like Gay Jesus, the new workout regimen. Like, you know, something that combined all of the possible covers in one thing. Uh, awesome. For your dog. Right. Yeah, that that would be good. Listeners, you've, again, sent uh, wonderful chatters. Please keep them coming. Tweet them to us at Slate Gabfest. And this week, uh, the chatter comes to us from David Foreman, who points to a story in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which is maybe my favorite listener chatter of the year. It is a story in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette about a man named John Potter. And John Potter is somebody who, uh, he f- he's a 29-year-old Pittsburgh resident who uh, frequented the Reddit Pittsburgh page, which I guess people on the Reddit Pittsburgh page talk about Pittsburgh, but they also sometimes have problems. They post their problems. And John Potter, just for no apparent, I mean, for actually for a very good reason, is that he had, he'd had an encounter with somebody who'd asked him for help, and he turned this woman down for help. And he felt terrible about it and tried to go back and help her, but he couldn't find her. And he just felt so much regret. And then so he started to look at the Reddit Pittsburgh page. And when people would post with some problem, something they need solved, he would just go solve it. So he would go install an antenna on someone's a TV antenna on someone's roof. Um, he would, uh, get, you know, someone needed uh, $70 for gas and he would just like bring them $70. He someone who was in a real dire state, uh, he just gave them half his life savings, $2,000, to help them out of a real dire state. And, and then in the last uh, few weeks, he gave somebody, just a stranger, his kidney. And it's just an amazing story of somebody who, who motivated kind of strangely and out of nowhere has become an incredible altruist and inspired the city of Pittsburgh. So I strongly recommend reading this. It's very, very lovely and inspirational, and uh, you'll feel much better when you read about John Potter. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, Danielle Hewitt, Ryan McAvoy, and Alan Pang. The threesome of engineers have helped us out. Also, our editorial director for Slate Podcast is Gabriel Roth. June Thomas is a managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at Slate Gabfest and tweet chatter at us. You should come to our live show in St. Paul on Wednesday, September 18th. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. So happy for the three of us to be back together. We will be with you next week.
Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We, um, because we're bad, bad podcasters, we did not give a full uh, delicious whole segment to the amazing Greenland-Denmark spat that has um, distracted and delighted much of the world this week. You have surely heard by now the president wants to buy Greenland, proposed it. They apparently proposed it to the Danes. The Danish prime minister called it absurd. Uh, President Trump said her response of calling it absurd was nasty and canceled a diplomatic, canceled a visit to Denmark. It's insane. It's insane. It's not even, it's just so insane. Uh, But uh, we're going to, we're not going to dig into that too much. Instead, we're going to decide what we should buy now that we cannot buy Greenland. So can you guys think of some things, places that we should buy? Emily, do you have a place that we should buy instead of Greenland? Man, I forgot the name of this island. There's an island in the Caribbean that only has like 60,000 inhabitants and we could buy it and then just like, you know, turn it into a state and uh, it would just be ours. Like all those islands, any mostly empty island that we could turn into a state. Yeah, let's just like do it up. But we already have an island in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, which has millions of people on it. That we should definitely turn state. that into a state. Also, Guam. Maybe we don't need to buy anything. We just need to take our existing islands and turn them all into states. Or to, or take our existing islands and treat them as if they're actually something that's a part of the United States. I mean, it's, well, you know, we don't... if they we were states, then we would have to do that, right? They would have more rights. I guess my feeling is the same feeling as, like, I don't know, you know, like... Deal with what you have first before you go buying new things. Feels like a. All right, we're, we're going to buy some new things. What, <laughs> David, what do you, what do you John? Want do you buy? have anything you want to buy? What do you want to buy, David? I have so many things I want to what buy. What do you want to buy? I have so many things I want to buy. What? Okay. Um, uh, I think the most important country we could buy would be Brazil because we could save a lot of rainforests. Yeah, buy it. Immediately. So I think we should buy Brazil. Yeah, buy it and send the fire trucks down there. Ireland. Ireland would be great because Irish and Americans get on like a house of fire. There is language commonality it would we could solve the backstop issue the brexit backstop issue also the tax really dodge issue like with apple oh the tax dodge issue right good point didn't even think about that as long as we didn't ruin it uh we would definitely ruin it number two slovenia so that we could ensure the supply of future trump wives like model wives without any immigration problems you know she should just be are you American. suggesting in that area that he is constrained by norms and laws that you would have to create this scheme to get Good around. Point. Good point. But the number one, the obvious one that we should buy is Iran. It's of they're course, very American. Dave, it's very favorite yes. country. It's a real they have a great, you know, they've got nukes that we can work with. They it's a they're very good at extractive industries, just like we are. It makes it super easy for us to invade Afghanistan or Iraq again if we need to, which we probably will want to. It's perfect. We could shut we down Hezbollah, a lot of funding for terrorists. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it'd be, you could probably get it as a discount these days. It's probably because of the sanctions. You could probably get it for like a trillion. How would you maybe. go about buying and a country? Treaties. Will you make an offer to – like? Does, is Greenland even for sale? I'm a little no. mi- mixed up about no. the status No, what do you mean Greenland? is it for sale? No, it's not no I mean like is it an independent – like the, the Danes, <laughs> does it have independent autonomy already? Like could the Danes even sell it as a territory if they wanted to? That it's amb- ambiguous because it is part of Denmark, but it also has a lot of autonomy. I think Dane, it it would not go well if the Danes tried to sell it. Like, I bet people in Greenland are like, no, we're not for sale. Go away. Well, everyone said that. The Danes said it, too. The, the Greenlanders said it. Everyone said it. 
I just am, right. I'm just struck by the idea that you can sell a place with inhabitants on it as problematic in itself. What, so, John, do you have any place that you would have us buy? That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.